O God, our Father, bless forward in faith. Inspire us and strengthen our fellowship. Help us to witness to the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that with love, patience, and evangelical zeal, we may win many hearts to Catholic truth an apostolic order for godly life within the fellowship of thy holy church. We ask this through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back to this new season of Forward in Faith North America. This is the podcast that brings to you all of the exciting, fun, energizing, snazzy, finger-snapping, toe-tapping. Oh, wait. I, I think I'm talking about something else. Uh, but hopefully you do enjoy taking the time to listen to uh, our discussions here and that it's beneficial for you and can become a resource that you can share with people. We're going to kick off this topic this week here talking about the in persona Christi capitis, the person of Christ for, specifically, holy orders. And we're going to not cover all three bishops, priests, and deacons this week, but we're going to start to press into these ideas a little bit, and hopefully over the next several weeks, just kind of extrapolate and to get more specific with variations you know, within the succession itself. So having said that, if you have a Bible and you want to open it up, open up to 2 Corinthians, or not, you could just follow along. Let's talk about in persona Christi for a moment and kind of recapture what the church has always said and taught about these topics, which, like many things, really went unchallenged up until more recent history. So I think that'll, that'll help us. Um, you know, if you, I know there are some people who claim that if you try to do a, a Google search or, or whatever your search engine, favorite is on this doctrine, they'll say, well, you know, it didn't really come out until the middle of the 20th century. Well, that's like saying the doctrine of the Trinity didn't come around until Nicaea. Yeah, they get better at the articulation and clarification of things, but we see that, you know, this, this, this principle, you know, like the canon of Scripture is not really the canon of Scripture before the council that canonizes the Scripture. You know, we, we can get into these, these poor arguments. And that's assuming you grant in persona Christi Capitus is something that comes in the middle of the 20th century. I don't, but for those of you who do Google searches, just to kind of give you a, a warning, right? Um, so, having said that, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is calling upon the Corinthian church to restore the brother who was in sin, who, based upon these words here, looks like he has repented. So, remember in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says to, he's, he has handed this guy over to the devil, and he calls upon the church to agree with him in this decision he has passed in the spirit, though he's physically absent, he's, pre he's present with them. Well, now here in 2 Corinthians 2, it looks like the church discipline was effective, the man has repented, and Paul is calling upon them to restore him. Uh, so I would encourage you to just look at the, compare those two chapters, and you can get some more detail on it. But in 2 Corinthians 2.10, Paul says, Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if I indeed have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. 
This word presence here is prosopon, and prosopon can mean presence, but it can also mean person. It's, uh, it's something equivalent to like persona, and it roughly, I don't know, maybe 100 years, but on either side of the writing of this letter, this word has a variation of meaning that becomes a bit more stringent and specific over time. So at, at this point, when Paul's using it, I'm trying to think of a dynamic equivalent here. It, it's something to the effect of an actor who puts on a mask or a costume to be representative or to be in the person of someone else. He, he's on behalf of another. That's one of the ways the word is used. Uh, prosopon is used for face in some edition, some translations. You know, they'll translate it, uh, behold, I send my messenger before your face, meaning the close proximity, because it's speaking to, Paul here is speaking to his role to the Corinthians from the immediate presence of Christ, the immediate face of Christ, the person of Christ himself. So the proximity that Paul has towards Jesus, with Jesus, in relationship to how Jesus would be dealing with the Corinthians. And so this is the the one of those key verses and themes here where it's it's easy to look at this and say it's not just paul saying on behalf of christ but in the presence in the person of christ so he he's extending the lord's manifest true real actual forgiveness and grace and reconciliation on the lord's behalf as the lord is working in the church. Paul is the means through which that grace is coming, that power is coming. And if we, if we can kind of start to, to let that swirl around in the soul a little bit, then we can start to think about the broader implications of this doctrine, which are also equally clear in other passages of Scripture. But this one gets overlooked. It gets glossed over so, so often in some of these discussions especially if we think that the bishop, the priest, or the deacon is not in the person of Christ, just representative of Christ, or someone empowered by the Spirit, or someone who, in a, in a, in a misappropriation of Galatians, uh, you know, the, um, how does Paul say it? For there is neither male nor female, slave nor free. Uh, there's, and there's another distinction he has for those who are in Christ, that all are one. And so people will, will pit these two verses to, together. You can't do that because of other teachings about nature and grace, masculinity and femininity, and how we as individual persons within the life of the church stand in proximity to Jesus as he relates to his body, to his bride. And I think that's where uh, a question pops up because we have other words that have similar meanings. Like the idea of like an apostle or an ambassador, how how is this different than that concept? Because it seems like there's some nuance. Um, yeah, there's nuance, but they're parallel. Like they're parallel ideas because apostolos and sheliak. So the as a man's representative is, so is the man, right? So yeah, it's it's a ambassador times ten kind of idea. So the way you treat an ambassador is the way that you treat the one who sent him. It's a very specific kind of designation and dignitary um, dignity in, in, the, in the role and in the office. 
but it's not just that in a in a nominal sense in this in this regard that I send you to go do X, Y, or Z, so you represent me. This we have to remember is sacramental. The worldview is sacramental. That's it's a philosophical realism. To go into the stone temple is to enter into heaven via types and shadows. To go through the water of baptism is to be united to Christ's body truly and really, not just in a in some sort of subjective interior my faith tells me kind of idea. You know, there, there's a real substantial, uh, substantive transaction that's taking place, an integration, a change, an indelible mark, to use another common phrase. We get this with marriage, you know, the two becoming one. Paul says, don't you know that whoever is one in spirit, whoever is joined to the spirit, <laughs> whoever is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. So we, we get this kind of spiritual, metaphysical, ontological union. In apostleship in the New Testament, Christ isn't sending them as merely type and shadow representatives of himself. Of himself, He breathes on them the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is in him. And so the Spirit of Jesus goes from Jesus into, not just on, but into the apostles, and they breathe him in. And so that is a very significant, substantial, sacramental change in the ontology of the apostles. So that now, yes, they retain their delegation and, and, and ambassadorial status, but now they're in his presence. They're, they're in his, before his face, if you will. They stand that way in their relationship to the church because Jesus establishes the apostolic college before he establishes the body. They are, they are interconnected, but they're distinct. And the episcopacy and the other you know, priests and deacons, they exist in the church for the church. And the church is built around them and sustained around them and becomes more fully the church when they are operating in the grace that they're supposed to be embodying, that they were given by virtue of ordination. So apostleship and this principle here of in persona Christi are bound together. Um, they're bound together in such a way that no one can divide it. And anything that tries to take its place is principally usurpation or a misunderstanding of what it is to be an apostle, what it is to be a bishop, priest, or deacon. Each one participating in some sacramental way with the, that first apostleship of, of the 12, that apostolic college, that is Jesus's in himself as the apostle, as the high priest, the prophet, the king, as the word incarnate. So essentially, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's more, you bring up the idea that the, this was established before, even maybe so you could say that the church was established. And so essentially, in him drawing people to himself, he is using these men and this idea as he draws in and builds the church. So yes, it's around himself, but in a lot of ways, these men are um, powerful representations of that. To yeah, lead. yeah. The, uh, so one of, the, one of the ways to think about apostleship is foundation. They're foundational men, which speaks to the sacramental character that they're receiving, that when it's mature, as it's maturing, 
they are men who become more stable, more reliable, more, well, Simon Peter, they become more of a rock for the community that they're presiding over. And their stability is a, a grace they receive from the Lord for the sake of the church. And it is through them that the head of the body is at work. But as in all things, the Lord is not utilitarian with us. He doesn't use us and discard us. So the grace that he is, is working in us now, whatever our calling and, and vocation may be, is the same grace that will continue to be in us, although the expression will change, even in glory at the resurrection. There, there's going to be another, it's a different dynamic, but the, we continue to be who we are. I mean, for example, when, and this is, well, it's, when Saul goes to the witch of Endor and she calls Samuel up from the grave, he's still a prophet. He knows the future. He's got his memory. He's got his personhood. He's got his intellect. He's got his wit. You know, why are you bothering me? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's dressed like a prophet, uh, but he looks like a god. So there, there's a, a glory with him as he comes up out of the ground. Uh, Moses and Elijah, when they appear on the transfiguration to speak to the Lord, they're very clearly who they are. And they're talking to Jesus about his exodus, meaning his death and resurrection. And Luke's tying the ideas together that the ministry that they had is anticipatory type and shadow of his work, and he needs to get ready. And they're speaking to him about this. So they retain all that they are. There's something about these graces that while they are work in us now, and can be mature in us for the life that we have, are still part of us on the other side. That's, that's all in divine providence um, and how that works out. In this case, here with the Corinthians and in Persona Christi, Paul is, ex is exercising in a very tangible way the authority that Jesus gave to the Twelve when he said that whoever sins they forgive will be forgiven, and whoever sins they retained will be retained. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, this guy is not forgiven. Hand him over, excommunicate him, disfellowship him from the church. I've already done it. You agree with me, so that he can be saved. So, even the most stringent form of ecclesiastical discipline is for the sake of producing repentance, not personal leverage. So, there, there's, there are qualifiers around what is a legitimate excommunication. That's, that's what's happening. And here in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 2, he is remitting the sin by readmitting this guy into fellowship, specifically fellowship around the Eucharist to receive the Eucharist. Peter does this in Acts 8 with Simon the sorcerer. You know, he, he, the scripture says he repented, he believed, he was baptized, he followed Philip, and here comes the bishop, here comes you know, the bishops, Peter and John, the apostles, and they discern that his conversion is not complete. And Peter says, you're bound in, in the gall of wickedness. Perhaps the Lord will forgive you. And so Peter exercises the authority of the keys. So he is, he is saying that, yeah, Philip baptized you, but your repentance isn't complete yet. You, 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 may your money perish with you. Or as J.B. Phillips says, to hell with you and your money. I mean, Peter's, he, he's, he's, Here's that stability side where he's coming to confirm and says, I can't confirm what's not there, and I can't confirm the evil that is present. So we see the apostles operating in this very dynamic grace, which bishops through history have operated in. Uh, Ambrose, you know, when he, when he tells, uh, is it 
Theodosius, the emperor, you know, he's excommunicated for what he does to the Thessalonican Christians. Um, and we can go on down through Christian history where this has happened. Uh, my favorite, Thomas Beckett, you know, that's what gets him in trouble with Henry II. One of the things when he starts excommunicating the king's men for, for what's going on. So this is bigger than that discussion, but it's this principle of in persona Christi and how the bishops, and then by, by virtue of the devolution of office into the priesthood and into the diaconate, the deacons are liturgically in the person of Christ within the church as the son of man who has come to serve, which is why in the liturgical uh, actions, deacons read the gospel in the midst of the congregation and why their, you know, their stole is to the side and they help set the table, but they don't, admit, they don't consecrate because it was to the apostles that Christ entrusted the Eucharistic meal. And it's through the apostles that he consecrates in the future to deliver that meal to the church. And we see that in the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus himself does not give to anybody. He gives to the 12, and then the 12 give to the crowds. So the priest participates, like the deacon, as in a devolutionary way with the authority of the bishop, but the priest's role is in persona Christi as preaching the word, administering the sacraments, sharing with uh, the, the bishop in that ability to retain sin or to forgive it. Or there's a qualifier, because if, if I were to do that, you know, to shut somebody off from the table, I got 14 days <laughs> to tell the bishop, hey, just to let you know, I had to refuse so-and-so because of his notorious sin. Whereas the bishops, it's, again, a higher ecclesial rank, so they don't, they don't do the same. All three of those orders, though, are, are the apostolic succession. It's one ministry comprised of three orders. They all participate in the same usia. If, if you want to take some of the language that we have for the Trinity for a moment, theologically, then you can bring that into this discussion about the order, the orders themselves of bishops, priests, and deacons are all part of the one apostolic succession, the one essence of the apostolic ministry. There's one ministry that's around one altar in one church that is manifest throughout the world in every parish where it's present because it's participating in one ultimate spiritual reality. So, the, the bishop is amongst the college of bishops, and he is enfolded into the apostolic college. We see this in Hippolytus' apostolic tradition and the various prayers of consecration. And then the, the devolution of, the, of apostolicity, of the episcopal office, into the priest and then into the deacon, there's one essence there. There's one, one, substance, one, one ministerial substance, if you will, but it's got three different ranks, three different ways in which that grace is effectually administered within the life of the church for the sake of the church, that the church may be the agent of change and redemption in the culture, in the world. In persona Christi is where we start to, when we start to look at this, uh, this principle, this doctrine, through that lens, it helps us see in a more clear way the things that can get cloudy when we try to understand this through contemporary ideas of egalitarianism, of uh, equal rights, of uh, inclusion, whatever the hot button issue is, you know, um, that seems to change like every three or four years now. Um, all that kind of goes out the window and we stop trying to evaluate on that metric 
and we start to look at it through the perspective of who is tied through sacramental union with Jesus because of nature to represent him in this very particular masculine way for the sake of the church. When we can do that, then we can start to weed out these other ideas. And some of those ideas are not just weeds, they're loud voices. Yeah, and I, th- I think that brings up a a question because you go ahead and you kind of set parameters for what that looks like of those who can stand uh, in Persona Christi. What, what does that look like? What are the limitations on that? Like, are there certain things that would keep one from being able to accomplish that? I mean, Paul gives us his lists of what's, what's appropriate for uh, holy, those in holy orders, you know, those who, who, are, who are ordained. And while the lists are different between Timothy and Titus, the essence is the same when he says they've got to be blameless. Um, and maybe, maybe we'll do an episode just on those requirements because those in and of themselves are a very interesting study because basically what Paul is doing is taking everything from Leviticus about the Levitical priesthood and all the very, in all the very particular ways that there are requirements for the priests, he's condensing them into particularities that are representative of the New Testament, not the old, but of the New Testament and saying, here's your requirements. And a couple things that, that jump out pretty fast when you look at the lists is that the moral qualifications for overseers and deacons is the same. They're absolutely identical. That's an important point because there are people who look at that third rank of, of deacon, the diaconate, as somehow a lesser gift in, because the offices are gifts. They're actual charisms of the Spirit. They're not just ecclesiastical institutions. If we understand them in, in, as ecclesiastical institutions, as offices in that uh, entrepreneurial or business sense, we don't understand what they truly are. Now, they, they have that quality about them because of and any organism that's not organized is dying. If it's not organized well, it's not growing well. So there's the, there is the, the connectivity here between the charism, the spiritual gift, which is an ontology, ontological change that by necessity has distinct office to it, for organizational purposes, but it's primarily a charism of the spirit, and the charism is episcopacy, uh, eldership, the, you know, the priesthood, and and the deacons. And there are people who will say, well, the deacons, because it's the third order, third rank, one order, third rank, it's inferior. Well, it's inferior in the sense that it it does not do what the priest does or what the bishop does. But it's not inferior in relation to what it's supposed to be. And Christ among us as the Son of Man to serve is a significant, definitive, holy calling. And so the deacon representing the Son of Man who washes feet, who preaches the gospel amongst the people, I mean, liturgically speaking, that's another reason the deacon, one of the deacon's primary responsibilities is catechesis. He's got, to go, he's got to create disciples and prepare them for baptism. Uh, Philip the Evangelist is a deacon. Again, I mentioned him a little while ago with Peter. So there, there's a dynamic there that when we start thinking about the hierarchy and we call something less or inferior, it's not to demean it, but to put it into relationship to something else. And, and when we see the moral requirements being the same, essentially, for the three offices, 
how how great the significance, how great the weight for whichever one of those God calls us into for vocational purposes. And I think you brought up a really good analogy of the idea of like the Trinity and not just, I can't remember if you actually like the idea of like this, um, the relationship even between yeah. the, the distinct roles there. You, you literally, they're different, but even within like the Athanasian Creed, you have like the idea of, you know, that the Holy Spirit isn't begotten. The Father isn't begotten. But you see like these clear roles but perfect unity, but yet almost still hierarchy within that perfect unity. I'll tell you, there is something really special about ministry with your bishop. I, uh, when I was a deacon, at the time I was a deacon, there was a special uh, prayer service. Uh, it, was a, it was a healing prayer service. So we, we had uh, our consecrated oil, and we were praying over lots of people. You know, they were coming for... for prayer for, you know, specific, lots of specific needs. And I remember distinctly, you know, my bishop at the time was there along with a number of priests. And I think, I think there was, there was another deacon who was senior deacon to me by decades, right? Uh, He was vocational deacon. And there was just something really, really special. I mean, it was just, it was a great sense to have this, you know, ministry team of, of men in holy orders who were celebrating this sacramental work, and God was, was encouraging and healing and nourishing His people. I mean, there's, you know, it's beautiful to talk about this in reference to the Eucharist, obviously, but then there are all these other ways in which that ministry is at work in the church for the church, and it's a profound thing. It's a profound thing. I mean, if anybody's listening to this right now who's in one of those holy orders, I, I would just ask you, how often you get to do ministry like that with the other people in your diocese or cross-jurisdictionally, but they're bishops and they're priests and you know, deacons, and you know that you're there encouraging, supporting, and sustaining the other while you're ministering to, to God's people. Anyone who, ever's been on, who has ever been on like a missions trip, there's a profound sense of unity and camaraderie that can happen for missions, missions teams. And when you take that principle and you see it within the sacramental life of the church, it's just magnified that much more. If two or three people can gather and Christ is present in a powerful, beautiful, magnificent way, how much more when the bishop and his clergy and the church is gathered is Christ present, especially around the altar? So it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful gift. Start off really talking about like impersonal Christ name. You see absolution you brought up from Second uh, Corinthians 1, and you've kind of alluded to it in, in the Eucharist, and I don't, you might want to talk about that some more. What are the other areas that we see? Because it's already, many times when you hear this idea being brought up, it's just at the table. Oh, so liturgically, yeah. Liturgically, what, what, what has happened since, go back and find the, the early records and read them. The deacons essentially are the ones who are preparing the table. You know, you can have subdeacons. You can have acolytes. You can have other people who are assisting him while he prepares for the celebration of the Eucharist at the altar, at the holy table at the altar, which includes, you know, chalice, burst, paten, uh, you know, the, the bread, the wine, which significant in our liturgy after the consecration, they're no longer bread and wine, but body and blood. You see that in our liturgical celebration, which is 
highlighting the the genuine effect of consecration. Um, and so the, that's that's basically what the deacon is doing is preparing that, right? And then the priests or a bishop will be there to pray the prayers of consecration over the elements, the epiclesis, the words of institution. Uh, and then also, unless you're using the 1662, you know, I mentioned the epiclesis, but then there's the, what has become common now is the double epiclesis that we would be sanctified as we receive, you know, Christ in the sacrament. And so the bishops and the priests are consecrating the elements, and then bishop and deacon or priest and deacon, depending on who's at, who's there, will administer the Eucharist to the church. And then once that's complete, the deacon then cleans the table. He cleans up after what's been going on. So he's, he is there present, representing Christ as the one who serves. The bishop and priest, they are there present as Christ being both high priest and victim. So he's both the priest and the sacrifice. And so when those, those things come together in those three orders, there's the picture of the whole of Christ's work of redemption. So you, you can kind of see that in the, in the opening up of the liturgical acts. And that, you know, that in and of itself is the kind of thing that once you see it, you never unsee it, and you want to see it wherever you go. And that, that's helpful because it, it keeps you, you know, I'm going to stay in the apostolic succession. I'm not going to run out to a church because they've got a laser show, you know? Um, <laughs> so all that to say, that's a different topic. But that stuff is, is a dynamic that isn't just representative action. It's sacramental participation in the presence of Christ. You said a word there that I, priest and sacrifice, the idea of priest and sacrifice. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Like the idea of more of the, the sacrifice, because the priest is, I think, more organic. But what do you mean by like sacrifice as well, being united in well, that? Yeah, this is, part of the, this is part of the apostolic charism of the bishop and the priest as the, the ministers who consecrate. When they speak the words of institution, this is my body. Yes, those are the words of Jesus. And they're saying in that consecration, the words that Jesus commanded to be said, and, so it's not but, it's an and, and it's those words have become their words. They are saying, this is my body. In the same way, not in a way that they replace Christ, that's not, that's not what it means. It's in the same way as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians. I have forgiven. He doesn't say the Lord has. He says, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, meaning Christ delegated this responsibility. I am in his presence. I stand prosopone before his face in his person. When the bishop and the priest or the priest speaks the words of institution, he is saying them on behalf of Christ in the presence of Christ because he is participating in the sacrifice of Christ in a particular way so that the body might participate in that sacrifice as well. Even the prayer over the elements, you know, we offer you the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. The sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving is the fruit of our lips and, and the bread and the wine that's being consecrated into the body and blood so that Christ is present on the altar, Christ is present in the minister. Christ is present in the body. 
and then the the petition that the Spirit would sanctify us is the petition that that would be matured and completed. So then the other statements of Paul in, in his other letters about, I carry around in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus. I manifest the life of the Lord Jesus, the resurrection power. There is, so all of that speaks to the, part, the very keen participation that the clergy have with Christ the head for the sake of and within the life of the church. Paul gets so specific, uh, so stark in his language about this, uh, that he says to the Colossians, and this people, this, this, this one is tough for folks, and I'll be honest, it took me, not that I'm lying anyway, but it, it took me... Uh, <laughs> Thank you for not lying to thanks. us. Yeah. I want to say six to eight months, probably 20 years ago, of really mining this text to figure out what in the world he was talking about, because I had always kind of just assumed and heard and been taught that Jesus's work was finished. And faith then was merely my intellectual assent and my emotional assent to that. And that's what saved me, right? It, that's part of it, but that's hardly enough. Paul says in Colossians 1, in verse 24, beginning in verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Well, how is God revealing this through Paul's preaching? How is God uh, making his word known? How is, he, how is he working this out in the church? through Paul's sufferings. And Paul is saying that his sufferings are the sufferings of Christ. He is participating in Jesus's redemptive power, which is displayed not through, not just through an abundance of miracles, but through his suffering. And so the whole of the apostolic order of bishops, priests, and deacons, each one participates in the suffering of Christ in a particular way to make up for what is lacking, not because Jesus' sacrifice was imperfect on the cross, but because his sacrifice is perpetuated, not just in the anamnesis of, with the elements, but in the anamnesis in the lives of his servants. That, again, speaks to the immutable nature of the sacraments in the sacramental life and why we do not have authority to ordain women. We do not have authority to swap out bread and wine for Cheetos and, uh, and Pepsi. We do not have authority to change male and female as it relates to marriage. We can't do it any more than we can change this. We are stewards of the mysteries. We are not masters of the mysteries. And mystery there obviously being sacramentum, uh, mysterium, sacramentum. Well, that, that's why it's an act of grace, and it's not something that we do ourselves. It's something that, that is accomplished in us by the will of the Lord, and His grace in us causes us or works in us the will to do that so that we can endure the hardship for the sake of the church. These theological points are preserved in the ordinal, all through the ordinal, and they, and they are shaped based upon the particular um, event that's taking place, the particular order that's being consecrated and ordained. Uh, there is, and, and you could see it in the exhortation. So, you know, like, for example, and 
pull up whatever prayer book you know you use in your parish. But for those who have been ordained, we we might forget, but we typically can remember if you were, when you were made a deacon and when you were made a priest or a bishop, the particular exhortation that was laid upon you, and they're pretty heavy. I remember when I was after I was ordained a priest, not a not a deacon, but as a priest, uh, a couple of friends of mine were standing outside, and they were eating the the post. Uh, post-ordination service snacks. You know, I think one had a piece of cake and the other had peanuts or something. And the one, one of them says to me, and he'd been a friend of mine, he's been a friend of mine since like 1991 or something. And he says, hey man, like if you do this wrong, you're going to go to hell. I said, well, <laughs> <laughs> the, the language is pretty heavy and it's very, very serious. Uh, but it's, I mean, from the, the ordination of a priest from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Uh, the exhortation, you know, at the last paragraph, seeing that the demands of this holy office are so great, lay aside all worldly distractions and take care to direct all that you do to this purpose. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures that you may show yourself both dutiful and thankful to the Lord and frame your conduct and that of your household and those committed to your care according to the doctrine and discipline of Christ. There's being summed up in so much of the exhortation and the prayers themselves of the of the various ordination services, liturgies, the teaching of the pastoral epistles, Paul's theology, the apostolic ministry and succession, it's all there. But when we can come back and open those that language up, or even here with Colossians 1 or 2 Corinthians 2, we can sit and let the language of the word open up over us. Stuff starts to tie together that we will probably just gloss right over. Or we would relegate, right? Well, that's Paul. That's not me. No. When you read what Paul says to Timothy, what he says to Titus, then it's like, oh, wow. If I am called, if there's some priestly character that I'm going to participate in, some order that I'm going to share in, then these graces will be at work in me in proportion to that vocation and to the specific acts that God has for me in the world at large so that the world might repent and the church might become mature in Christ. Yeah, and I remember last week we were at a um, at an ordination service for a, a deacon. Actually, it was a three-for-one special. That's right. Because it was the ordination of a deacon. Um, the ordination of a, of a priest. Of a priest and the establishment. Is the it, installation, installation of a rector. Of a rector. Yeah. Um, but one of the things, and I don't know why this particular um, exhortation kind of caught my attention. And I, it wasn't that I didn't, hadn't heard it or hadn't read it before, but we're, he's, the bishop was reading this and, um, it was, we're going through it. Cause I mean, like I said, we had a, a three for one special, not to denigrate anything that was happening, but he was, he was moving on through it. He was. Well, I mean, the institution of a rector in and of itself reiterates some of this. Yes, it does. But I, I'm thinking, especially that last paragraph that you read, I'm like, we're this is weighty and it's not that we're skipping through it it wasn't irreverent but i'm like there is no way for time's sake for us to truly understand and capture it's like in that moment but i remember thinking that i'm like oh my gosh it's like this a wedding. is yeah it's the same principle. you do not wait until the wedding to go over the vows like you don't wait until the wedding to talk about what it's going to require there's a formation there's a formation and a preparation process for the sacrament of marriage it's a vocation. There is a formation and preparation process for holy orders based upon the particular order that one is being called into. There's no givebacks, you know? You don't, you don't recall yeah. the indelible mark. 
you can go into sin or theological error and have your license removed, but the indelible mark isn't taken away. Judas. I mean, yeah, so those are, those are important themes there. Yeah. The other thing I think uh, is interesting that you brought up and really spent some time on is that idea of like the suffering, being united with Christ and that, and, uh, specifically and uniquely in office. And, and a lot of times, and I didn't realize that this was the case, that depending on your, your background, the idea of in-person of Christi might have a negative connotation due to abuse of, oh, well, I'm standing in place of Christ. Like, yeah, like how dare pride. you challenge yeah. me? Yeah. I don't see when proper, properly balanced with the scripture and what Paul is saying, that seems a pretty difficult place. Now, there is time, obviously, like when you mentioned Peter stands up to Simon the Sorcerer, hey, no, you're done. But at the same time, it, the balance that both aspects of this bring into that, even though it is powerful, at the same time, it's, it's, hum, it's humbling and it's covered, yes, and I don't I think pride's the wrong word, but it's, you have authority, but at the same time, there, there's humility worked into that as well. Well, yeah. I mean, when someone legitimately has authority, they don't need to go around talking about it. No, that was yep. sorry, when uh, the last Sergeant Major of the Army, he put out one of his top like 30 things for leaders. If you have to tell people you're, you're in charge, you're not. You're not in charge. Right. Um, there's, because there's, there's, there is uh, institutional authority, but then there's moral authority. And that's really what needs to be cultivated in the lives of clergy. And this goes to the other point that you're making. We, clergy, we don't exist alone. We're not isolated. We're in an order. So we have, and then we're subjected to ecclesiastical authorities. So we've got, we've, there's, no, uh, there's no lone ranger. There's no individual person. I mean, Paul's whole thing in Galatians 2 is how, one, he confronts Peter, prince of the apostles, for his sin. But then how Paul has to submit to Peter at the same time, both are in the same chapter. And so this dynamic interplay is always uncomfortable because there is no submission unless there's disagreement. If you never disagree, you're never submitted. You're just working together with somebody. It's a co-worker. Hierarchy necessitates submission when there's disagreement for the sake of the glory of God and the unity of the church. And suffering, in this sense, in Paul's saints, the suffering he's experiencing, there's lots of ways that this can be displayed or, or manifest in the life of an individual, but um, so does power, like transformation power, resurrection power, uh, you know, stewardship power, bringing somebody into the kingdom via baptism. Very, very, very substantial and substantive acts of God through the agency of the clergy, of his people, for the sake of the church so that the whole church participates in those graces in a corporate way. Uh, and, and those ideas get explained even more by Paul, member to member within the church in 1 Corinthians 12. Diversity of manifestations, a, a diversity of gifts, a diversity of, you know, uh, of ministrations. So it, it, it spills out, you know, like trunks, the tr a tree trunk goes into the branches and then into the twigs and into the leaves. That's the, that's the kind of expression that grows out of, the, of Christ himself, you know, through the church. So that, uh, I mean, I hope that's a good introduction for this concept for some folks thinking about in persona Christi, uh, in persona Christi capitus and some, some uh, 
write-ups if you want to do some more research on it. And I think it's a good intro for our, our episodes that we've got planned for this season. So by all means, you know, give us, uh, give us a subscription and feel free, to, feel free to share. And if you've got any questions or comments, you can send them to me because we want to make sure we're articulating well. Send them to me at Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L, at ascensionwv.org. And thank you for your time, and may the Lord give you a great week. I'm Daryl. I'm Adam. 